says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things of which I'm accused by the Jews. Especially you are an expert in the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must also do things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things of which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Father, we humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now to open up our heart, our soul, our mind, our spirit to receive what it is that you want to say to us this day and hour from this portion of your holy and inspired word that you've given to us. So, Lord, you know what we need and what we're asking. Bless your word and speak to us. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, could it be possible that you desire some change in your own life? Or maybe you desire some change in someone else's life. The word change is defined as the act of making something different. Let me give you one or two other words that connect to that. The word conversion speaks of the process of changing something from one form to another. The word transformation speaks of a thorough or dramatic change in form and appearance. I want you to know that Jesus' plan is to bring much-needed change to lives. 
That's a part of the plan of the Lord to bring change into people's lives. And the good news is, despite our human weaknesses, Jesus has power to bring conversion, change, and transformation into people's lives. Whether it be changing our life dramatically or powerfully changing the life of someone else. And that's what we see in our passage today, reminding us not only of what Jesus did, but even what Jesus wants to do in lives still to this day. Remember the background, Paul is currently standing as a prisoner before many political leaders and important people to be examined for the charges and accusations against him. And it is as if, once again, we've been seeing this, God almost kind of sets Paul on a stage dramatically once again to have opportunity to bear witness of spiritual truth about Jesus. We get the basic context of what's happening in this moment if we just glance back to chapter 25. If you look with me, chapter 25, verse 23, let me just read the context. It says, so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, that is pageantry, these special people, and entered the auditorium with the commanders, the religious leaders, the military commanders, and the prominent men of the city, all these movers and shakers gathered together at Festus' command. Paul, the prisoner, was then brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, that is no criminal charges, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus or to Caesar, I decided to send him. But I have nothing certain to write my Lord concerning him. He needed some charges to send him to Caesar. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after examination has taken place, I may have something to write for seemed unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify charges against him. Now it is with that backdrop, verse 1, our text picks up this morning. Then Agrippa, verse 1, chapter 26, said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand. He was Italian like I am. He stretched out his hand. You've noticed that over the years, right? And he answered for himself. So Agrippa, notice, now gives Paul direct permission to be able to speak and to share the things that were on his heart and mind. He extends to Paul an invitation to tell him and everyone else gathered exactly what he thought would be helpful to know. You notice verse 1 specifically says, Paul, you are permitted to speak. In other words, Paul, I'm asking you to tell us whatever you think we need to know. Now, let me just say, Paul at that point did not have to wonder if they were open to listen to him. He didn't have to consider whether or not they were willing to hear his input. They just requested his input. They just gave him direct permission and freely asked him to share his thoughts. And what does Paul do? Well, look at verse one. It says, Paul answered. They said, Paul, tell us what you think. And Paul answered, and that's what our text gives to us, Paul's answer. The point is, he realized, okay, this is a divine appointment. It doesn't take rocket scientists to figure that out. 
They just said to me, tell us what you think. And Paul says, obviously, God, you've just given me a stage right here to share the things that are on my heart about your son, Jesus Christ. And he capitalizes on the opportunity. And, you know, sometimes, folks, we do find ourselves on occasion kind of given just a divine appointment like this, where perhaps we may find ourselves actually invited to share with people. Sometimes people actually say something like in a conversation, well, you know, I don't know, or I'm not really sure. Uh, What do you believe? What do you believe? Well, listen, when somebody says, what do you believe? Tell me what you think. That's called a divine appointment. You don't even have to pray about it. Just capitalize on that moment. They're looking for an answer, and they've actually asked you some sort of a spiritual question. And we want to be ready to take advantage of those moments. You know, the Lord perhaps times gives us direct permission and special divine appointment. 1 Peter 3, 5 tells us this. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Always be ready. It tells us in Colossians as well. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Look, I can promise you this. Everybody on this earth has got questions buried in their soul. Whenever I do a funeral, I'd much rather do funerals than weddings. People are crazy at weddings. I do weddings because I have to, to be nice and to try and be a servant. I would much rather do memorial services, funeral services, Because in those moments, people are broken, they're humbled, and they're asking all the questions that are buried down in their soul that they just suppress their whole life long. What's this all about? What's the meaning of life? What happens after we... And and they're asking all the important questions, and you can just answer the questions. And they're a captive audience. They're going to listen either way. And so sometimes the Lord may give us these moments. If somebody asks you a question, capitalize, answer Speak and take advantage. Pay attention when those moments come. So Paul's been given permission, and now he's going to start to share his experiences and the testimony of how his life once was before he was a follower of Jesus, and then this powerful change and conversion that happened in his life personally. He says in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews especially, he says, because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. So Paul was glad. He really appreciated the opportunity to now share with Agrippa regarding what had happened between him and the Jews, why they hated him so much, why they were accusing him of all these things that they were falsely. And he says, especially, Because he says, King Agrippa, what we all know of you, again, this was part of what people knew of Agrippa's background, he was very well acquainted with the customs and the ways of Judaism. And so because of this, Paul thought, this is fantastic because your background knowledge will help you further grasp and understand what I'm trying to communicate here. So Paul says in verse 3, concluding, therefore, I beg you, he says, I beg you, to hear me patiently. So look what Paul's doing. He's kindly requesting that King Agrippa and others there listening would take the time to hear him out fully. 
And I think this was important because it would take a little bit to give the full story, but the background was very helpful for clarity to make a right response in this situation. So understanding that, in a sense, Paul's thinking, okay, they may not like some of the things I'm about to say, but they need to hear the full story so they can make a proper response. And even if they didn't like certain things that they were hearing, it was important, take notice, to exercise patience in order to hear Paul out until he was done sharing what he needed to speak about. It was important that they would patiently listen because patiently listening and hearing him out would ensure the best chance of making a proper response as they could consider all the information and how it all connects and then make a well-informed decision and response afterwards. And so Paul says, look, please hear me out patiently, you know, by way of application for us still. When we are sharing important things, like Paul here, whether it's, look, maybe whether it's clearing up a matter or maybe it's in some way kind of trying to just share spiritual truth, it's important that we listen patiently in those situations. And that works on both sides. If you're the one speaking, maybe you're trying to clear up a matter or to share spiritual truth with someone. Sometimes it's wise if you're the one speaking to kindly ask people, hey, can, I, can, I, can you just give me your patience here and would you just hear me out? Just because we have a very strong tendency as human beings that just kind of, we hear two, three sentences, we're already determining our response and then we just interrupt people, we over talk people. And, and so sometimes it's almost helpful to say, look, I, I wanna share some things, but can I ask in advance, would you just listen me through first? Let me finish saying everything I wanna say and then you can say everything you wanna say afterwards so that they could hear it out fully, because sometimes it takes hearing the full package to actually have clarity and not respond foolishly because we didn't hear the rest of the story or we didn't take in all the details. Or pro So sometimes it's wise in communicating to actually ask that graciously, like Paul did. Hey, I beg you, would you, would you hear me out patiently? And on the other side of that, when someone's about to speak, it's very important as well on the other side, if we're the listener, that we learn to listen to people patiently. And take the time to actually hear people out. Don't shut them off right away or shut them down or over-talk them or tune them out partway through. Hear them out. Hear people out patiently. And you know, when we do that and fully hear somebody out, it ensures a much better chance to respond properly. So on both sides of that, it's very, very helpful. Well, Paul's now going to begin to share his personal testimony, again, of his background before his spiritual conversion and then the transformation that happened. And this is now the third time, if you've taken notice, in the book of Acts, if you've been studying it with us, that Paul shares his personal testimony, the record of it, or Luke does, excuse me, that we get the record of Paul's conversion experience in Christ. Now, uh, because we've already covered and explained it prior two times in Acts chapter 9 when it first happened, and then just recently, again, we studied it in Acts chapter 22, I want to move a little more quickly through the conversion record itself that Paul's giving, rather than getting bogged down in the details, since we've already explained it and kind of expounded upon it before, and focus more on certain parts that we get here that are some new insights that we didn't get in the prior records, particularly we'll see the ministry calling that Jesus gave to Paul at the end of the testimony. So Paul starts out here in verse four, giving his background. He says, my manner of life from my youth 
which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Verse 5, he says, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So from the time of Paul's youth, probably maybe somewhere around 12 years old or so, Paul began receiving elite training from Gamaliel, one of the most famous and renowned rabbis in that time. And Paul was experiencing incredible education right in the epicenter of the religious life of the Jews there in Jerusalem. And Paul says, from my youth, I was learning, receiving elite instruction regarding the Old Testament scriptures and the customs of Judaism and the ways of the Jewish people. And he says, and I became a very devout follower of those things. He says, at one point in time, I ultimately became a Pharisee. He says, verse 5, I lived according to the strictest sect possible of our religion as a Pharisee. Again, the Pharisees, remember, were radical adherents to following and living out every letter of the law. And beyond that, they went far to an extreme and they added all kinds of additional rules and regulations and rituals of what the law even meant. And they were very, very strict in their observance of the ways of Judaism and then even beyond that extra rules and regulations. And Paul says, I was a part of that group. I was extreme. I was a very devoted man to Judaism as a Jew, he says. In fact, I developed quite a reputation, he says. If they were willing to testify, he says, they all knew me from my youth, from the earliest days, if they would just testify that I was a strict Pharisee. They know what I was like, Paul says, that I was devoted to those things. He says, verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our Father. So Paul identifies he's actually being judged, but judged wrongly. And Paul says, what's peculiar is I'm actually being judged as a faithful Jew for the very hope that God gave by a promise that he made to us and the fathers, to our people. Now, of course, what Paul's referring to is that this was in direct connection to the hope God gave to all Jews in the Old Testament regarding the promise made to them, and that promise was the promise of a Messiah, that is, or a deliverer, one who would come to bring salvation to the people. The Old Testament law pictured many different ways. The Old Testament prophets predicted specifically many times over that God had promised to send them a deliverer. That's what we mean when we speak about a Messiah or the Greek term, the Christos or the Christ. That's what that infers. And he says, God gave us this promise. And this was our hope that one day this Messiah would bring forgiveness of sins and victory over death and judgment. And that deliverer would even bring resurrection. That is life after death and the hope of eternal life to dwell in the kingdom of God. And Paul says, verse 7, to this promise, our 12 tribes, take notice there, from the Holy Spirit's perspective, there are still 12 tribes, and God knows they all exist. So when people try and bring replacement theology, well, this is the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit says, God still knows there's 12 tribes. Israel still has a national identity in God's mind. He has no problem with that. So he says, to our 12 tribes... 
earnestly serving God night and day, he says, we hoped to attain. So Paul says, look, as a faithful Jew, I understand what God's promised to us like all the other Jews do. And he says, I understand why we live so strictly religious because of our expectation of Messiah. He says, as Jews, we sought earnestly to serve God day and night, hoping, he says there, hoping to attain this promise that God had offered to us. See, Paul understood because he was there once how they were trying to be loyal to God, thinking this hope of eternal life and resurrection would come through their faithful obedience and adherence to the law of Moses. And that if they just obeyed the law strictly enough that somehow through that strict adherence that they would then experience this resurrection hope of the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, they were overlooking the clarity of God's promise that that was instead going to be sent to them through the deliverer, through the Messiah, not through their strict adherence of legalistic ritual living, but through God's offer of the person, the deliverer, the Messiah, who would bring to them forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life because he would be the actual eternal son of God with life-giving power when he raised from the dead after being crucified for sins, as Isaiah 53 predicted. So that's why Paul says, verse 7 going on, For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible, he asked, by you that God raises the dead? So Paul, knowing that Agrippa had familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures and the testimony of God, he points out that he's actually being accused specifically because he was declaring that God had sent the Savior, that God had sent the Messiah, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, and that the Messiah had come and God had displayed his power by allowing Jesus to be a suffering, humble servant, according to Isaiah 53, and then die for the sins of humanity, but that God also had displayed his power by then raising Jesus of Nazareth back to life from the dead, displaying his power so that he might offer to humanity power over death as well, and that this Jesus was both Lord and Christ. Now, for anyone who had familiarity with the Old Testament, Agrippa or any of the Jews, it was evident that God had power to do anything. I mean, even their Old Testament scriptures revealed that God had worked in powerful ways, miraculous ways, and even raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. So what Paul was saying is, why should it be hard to believe that the Father rose Jesus of Nazareth from death after he was killed by our people, the Jews? Paul says in verse 8 there, why should it be thought incredible, the idea is, hard to believe or, you know, somehow impossible by you that God raises the dead. If God has miracle working power, Paul says, which we all know that, he says, if God has raised people from the dead before, brought them back to life and nothing's too hard for God, why should it be shocking that God raised Jesus of Nazareth back from the dead? Why should it be surprising to believe that God could raise the dead. You know, we might say, as we look at verse eight there, you know, why should it be surprising to us that God could do something impossible? Why should it be shocking to us that God could take something dead and bring it back to life again? Why should it be difficult for us to believe that God could do something impossible in a situation to bring powerful change? 
or powerful transformation in some way. He's God. He has no limit to his power. There's no hindrance to his abilities. He can do anything miraculous. Nothing isn't possible for God to perform. I mean, should we ever, folks, really have any reason to doubt that God could do something if he wills to? That God could do anything if he wills for it to come to pass? Remember when God was speaking to Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were in a sense, dead physically, their bodies unable to conceive a child. And God said, but you're going to have a child because I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to take what's dead and I'm going to bring life. And, and again, God gave Abraham this promise of doing the impossible. And then the Lord said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. Too hard for us, of course. But is there anything too hard, anything for the Lord? There isn't, nothing is too hard for the Lord. He's a miracle working God. And perhaps recently, maybe you, in some ways, like Paul's addressing the overly logically thinking through here with Agrippa and those listening, maybe you've been using a little too much logic, needing to understand how could that happen? I wish it would happen. I wish change could come. I wish something miraculous and impossible, but I just can't, I just can't see how it could happen. Well, maybe you can't figure out in your mind how it could happen, and maybe your logic and reason is hindering your faith. Maybe you don't need to know how. Maybe you just need to believe it can, to believe God can do it, even though you don't know how he could do it, because God's not limited, and God has the power, and we don't ever want our reason or logic to hinder our ability to believe and receive God's power working. Because our unbelief can be a hindrance and sometimes our logic can be one of the problems with that. So he says, why should it be impossible to believe that God can raise the dead? Indeed, he says, verse 9, however, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, this I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them, verse 11, often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, Paul says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So notice again, Paul's admitting in this record, as we've seen before, what his past life was like before he became a follower of Christ. And Paul says, I at one point was completely hardened to this reality of believing in Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Lord. And he says, at one point in time, anything and anyone that went contrary to the ways of Judaism, he says, I saw it as an enemy too. And I saw it as a threat that needed to be destroyed because it could threaten the customs of Moses. And Paul strongly felt it was his responsibility to stop that and did everything in his power that he could. He says, verse 9, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice, I have underlined there, Paul says, I thought that I should do this at one time. In other words, Paul's saying, I once thought that this was so right to stop Jesus, that Jesus was wrong, that I didn't need Jesus. And he says, that's what I thought. And he says, I realized eventually what I thought was wrong. Even my religious thoughts were wrong. And Paul had strong religious thoughts. 
But he says, I realized ultimately what I thought needed to change. My thinking was wrong. And you know what, folks? Sometimes our thinking can be wrong. Sometimes what we think, we may strongly, sincerely, really think it's right, and we're wrong. Religious deception and spiritual deception, that's one of the biggest problems. Look, there are people all over the globe who sincerely believe their religious beliefs, and they're sincere, and they really, really think it's right. But they're deceived, and they need to come to a place where they realize, oh my goodness, what I thought is wrong. It doesn't line up with what God's word says, and and that can be a struggle. And as we've seen before, Paul describes how it made him a fierce enemy. I mean, this guy fought against everything. He says, "I, I was causing people to blaspheme. I was, verse 11, he says, exceedingly enraged. I mean, Paul, we've seen, talked about, he was like a ferocious beast trying to cause people to get arrested and put people to death. He was chasing people to foreign territories outside of Israel trying to get them arrested and persecuted. Again, Paul, again, there's this fitting testimony, is he not, of someone who had an incredibly wild past, and yet he still wasn't outside of God's reach. Paul's life and testimony is a reminder to all of us, despite someone's current situation, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. No one is. Paul's life testifies to that very, very reality. Well, Paul then describes his conversion experience in verse 12 to 15. He says, while I was thus occupied, enraged, unbelieving, he says, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, remember he was going there to arrest more Christians there in Damascus. At midday, O king, he says, verse 13, along the road, I saw a light from heaven. Remember, Jesus showed up and Heaven parted and Jesus appeared to him brighter than the sun. Now take notice, that's the glory of Jesus. Brighter than the mid-eastern hot noonday sun. You ever try to stare directly into the sun? I don't suggest it. And the Bible says the glory of Jesus eclipsed the brilliance of the hot mid-eastern noonday sun. That's some powerful glory. That's some powerful glory. Oh, the big man upstairs. I don't know if I talked to him that way. Somebody just said that to me recently. Oh, the big man upstairs. He's a little more than a big man upstairs. He's brighter than the noonday sun. I wouldn't go get chummy chummy like that. He's the Lord of glory who we should bow the knee to. And so here, Paul, he's arrogant. He's, you know, he's smarter than God. I mean, he's just all this, you know, this animosity. He's just a stubborn, strong man. But I love what the Lord does with our stubbornness and our pride, right? He says, that day the Lord revealed himself shining around me and those who journeyed with me, verse 14. And when we had all, look at this, fallen to the ground, Paul was humbled, broken. And the Lord has a way of humbling the most arrogant of our lives and breaking us you know we can be so stubborn and rebellious and we need heart change and jesus is okay with that he can break stubbornness he can break arrogance in humanity and paul says when that happened man he says we were stripped bare he says we found ourselves fallen on the ground just fallen on the ground he says and then i heard a voice speaking to me saying in the hebrew language notice jesus spoke in paul's own language because He speaks in the language of the heart. He wants people to hear his voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, 
Who are you? Notice Lord, that means master, curios, the one who should reign over me. The idea is, who are you? And imagine, as we said before, when Paul heard, I am Jesus, who you've been persecuting. I'm Jesus. And of course, at this moment, Paul finds himself humbled and broken. He realizes this individual who's revealing himself to me that's put me on my face is the Lord, the master, the ruler, the one who should reign over me. And he says, I submit myself to you, Lord, but who are you? I will follow you and surrender to you. And then he hears, I'm Jesus. Man, he had to be shaken in his sandals. I'm Jesus. And Paul being gripped with no doubt. Imagine, imagine the, the conviction of his guilt and the shame that he felt and how, you know, terrified. Oh, my goodness. What have I? And all of a sudden he finds himself humbled and submitted at the feet of Jesus and just completely broken in that moment, realizing he needed to change his mind and change his heart. And this moment becomes the change in Paul's life, the conversion moment where he goes from being an enemy of Jesus to a follower of Jesus, from being someone who hated the ways of Christianity to someone who did everything he could to live them out and tell others about the ways of Christianity. It becomes his spiritual conversion. This was Paul's experience. They, he met Jesus personally in the same way we all, to some degree, need to have our own experience with the person of Jesus. Not church, not Christianity, but Jesus Christ our own personal experience where we hear his voice and we bow the knee to his lordship over our lives. And of course, Jesus saying to Paul there in verse 14, Paul, boy, it's been hard for you to kick against the goads. Again, remember the goad there is that pointy stick that they would use to cause an ox to move forward if it was being stubborn and digging in its heels. They would, with a sharp pointy stick, give it a a little poke in its rear side and make it go forward. And sometimes an animal is stubborn and it would actually kick back against the goads. It would kick against that which was trying to move it in the right direction and just hurt and bloody and harm itself because it was kicking against the very prod. And that's what Paul had been doing. Jesus said, Paul, you have been resisting me for a long time. It's hard to do that, Paul, isn't it? Aren't you tired of fighting me off? Aren't you tired of resisting what I'm trying to say to you and you keep resisting it to your own hurt? Paul, that's hard. Paul, it's hard for you to resist my will and my plan for your life. Paul, you've been resisting me for a long time. And you know what, folks? It is indeed truly hard and painful to resist the Lord. Probably one of the most miserable experiences in humanity has got to be when Jesus starts working on a person's heart, telling them that they need to be saved how to be saved, that they need to submit to Jesus Christ, not be religious, but come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, or that they need to get out of this life of, you know, sin or the crazy cycle they're in, and they need to give their life to Christ and follow them. And they know it, and they just keep fighting against it and fighting against it and fighting against it. Oh, it's miserable. I was there once. I know it's miserable, and it's hard. It's hard when the Lord is trying to reveal something to us or push us in a direction and get us in the right direction. And we're just kicking against it. And for whatever reason, we're just resisting the Lord. And the Lord says, boy, it's hard for you to resist me, isn't it? How much better when we just like Paul here, just fully submit. Paul just let it go that day. And he bows the knee to Jesus. 
And this incredible change comes into Paul's life now as he starts to follow the Lord. And it would have been probably enough for Paul, I imagine, if Jesus just had mercy on him that day. I'm convinced. Consider Paul's background. If Jesus just said, okay, Paul, you bowed the knee, I forgive you. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to have mercy on you as the Lord of glory. But Jesus, in his grace, had even greater plans for Paul, not just to be merciful to him, but actually he's going to change all that passion and zeal Paul had for hatred against Jesus, and he's going to turn it around and channel it now to make Paul a servant of Jesus going forward with that same energy and zeal. He says to him, look what he says, verse 16. Jesus said to Paul, rise and stand on your feet. And I'm sure Paul did that probably pretty quick. Yes, sir. I mean, just a little, yeah, whatever, Lord. But I like Jesus's words to Paul because can you imagine there had to be a little part of him like you and I in his humanity, all the regret of his failure and how wrong he had been doing the things that he had done. I imagine Jesus is saying, Paul, look, get off your face. I don't want you laying there in paralysis the rest of your life. I'm acquainted with your failures, Paul. I've watched you. I watched every failure. But that's why I died on the cross for sins. And so, Paul, get off of your face. Don't live in self-pity and paralysis the rest of your life. That's forgiven. I came to make you new. I got a fresh start and a new life for you. In fact, he says in verse 16, I've appeared to you specifically for this purpose. In other words, Jesus made a purposeful revelation to Paul with a reason because he had a purpose for Paul's life, the remainder of it. Your past is gone, Paul. And I didn't just save you just to forgive you, Paul. I actually have a purpose for you to live for me as a Christian now. I saved you not just to bring you to heaven, but I saved you because I have a purpose for the rest of your life to fulfill. And you know what, folks? The Lord does the same in our lives. He reveals himself to us personally, certainly to save us, but he doesn't just save us to take us to heaven because if that was the case, he would have saved me and killed me right away. Would have been way less work for him, I'm convinced. Tony's saved. Let's get him out of here. After three breaths, he'll be doing something dumb, right? But he doesn't do that. He saves us, and then he lets us live for him because he has a purpose for us as a Christian to now serve him in some way, to be useful for the Lord. So he says, Paul, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you, verse 16, a minister and a witness, both of the things which you've seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. Paul's informed that Jesus had recruited him to serve him for his kingdom, to make his life useful. He says, Paul, I've revealed myself to you to make you, he says, first of all, a minister. And that word minister there in the original language just means servant. It's the term that was used for the under rower in a big ship. You've seen the old Ben-Hur movie or movies like that where you have the men under the deck where nobody can see, and they're straining at the oars and sweating and working hard. They were the under rowers. They were the ones that kept things going forward and kept things moving, and they were doing all the hard work, all the practical sweat, but nobody saw them. No recognition. It was the epitome of servanthood. Just doing practical tasks, working, serving, laboriously, long hours, no recognition. No glory, no fame, just serving. Servanthood. And that's what Jesus says here. Paul, I've come and I've revealed myself to, myself to you for this purpose, to make you an under rower, a servant. 
We have in the English the word minister. Our idea of minister today is so far off the radar charts. The word minister means servant. Jesus said the greatest among you should be servant of all. That's the idea that Jesus says ministry is servanthood. And he wants us as followers like Paul to learn how to be servants. And you know why that's important, folks? Because by nature in the world and our natural sinful tendency is to do what? To be self-serving. And that's what we're like naturally, to be self-serving. That's the pattern of the world, to let people serve you, do the least you can, and be selfish and self-serving. But Jesus comes and he says, I want to change that whole mindset when you become a Christian. I want to change you and now make you a servant, somebody who will be a servant and who will minister to others and serve other people around you in every way that you can. And as well, he wants to make us, like Paul, a witness. Paul, I've called for you to be a witness of what you've already seen and learned of me and what I'm going to keep revealing to you. And a witness, in the simplest form, is one who has firsthand experience in a matter and they can give credible testimony to other people, to convince them with credible firsthand testimony of what is true. And Paul had experienced Jesus personally firsthand, and he says, Paul, now I want you to witness of me to others. That's why we have Paul's conversion story probably three times, because God knows the power of personal testimony witness tell people what jesus did in your life how did your life change just witness about that this is what i was and then this happened and i met jesus and this is how my it's just being a witness you have firsthand experience you don't have to be a theologian tell people what the lord has done in your life and what he continues to do in your life it has great impact i love particularly in verse 16 the fact that jesus says to paul For this purpose, I've appeared to you, he says, to make you a minister and a witness. Paul, this is what I'm going to make you. Now, to me, that's very encouraging because that shows me how change comes into our lives, not by our own efforts or our self-resolve or our reform efforts. How do we change? By the power of the spirit of the Lord. Jesus says, I will make you, Paul into a minister i will make you into a witness what a wonderful thing all we need to do folks is yield and submit to what he wills for our life and he by his power makes us what he wants us to be jesus said to the disciples come follow me and i will make you fishers of men he said you just follow me i'll make you what i want you to be i'll make you into what i want you to be You just follow me, and by his power, he makes us what he has called for us to be and what he intends for us to do. Verse 17, Jesus then says to Paul, and I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So Jesus promises him preservation as he would go out and minister, that he would be kept and protected when he was rejected and mistreated. And he also told Paul of his own specific calling in verse 17. He says, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Notice, Paul had a specific calling. He was called to the Gentile people specifically. Jesus said, that's who I'm sending you to. Now, as a Jew, Paul would typically have great dislike for the Gentile people. He'd even probably have animosity towards them. So I'm sure it was probably naturally, initially, the last group that Paul thought he would be sent to to go serve and to minister to. But Jesus has a way of changing people's hearts, even towards other people. Paul, you may not like these people, but I can make you like those people. Paul, you may not care about those people, but I can give you love for those people. 
Because, Paul, that's who I'm sending you to. And, you know, sometimes for us, we should always remember that sometimes the Lord has a specific calling for us in maybe who he wants us to reach or impact. Maybe a group or certain individuals or maybe a particular, you know, uh, you know community, but, but he's sending us specifically with a calling and a ministry or maybe a particular form of ministry. And he says, this is what I'm sending you to do. This morning, ask yourself, get alone, ask the Lord. What might the Lord be sending you for to do? To reach who? To serve in what capacity? Look, it doesn't matter where your heart is towards that now. He can give you the heart for what he sends you to do. He'll do that. He'll give you the heart for that. A lot of times that's how you can tell what the Lord is directing you to do. And then in verse 18, Jesus tells Paul why he was sending him out to minister and serve in these ways. He says, I'm sending you out to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God, excuse me, the power of Satan, excuse me, to God. So Jesus identifies the reasons why people needed help as he gives Paul's commission. And the reasons are very evident in the beginning of verse 18. Whether people recognize it or not, they are spiritually blind and they're enslaved as spiritual prisoners. Jesus says to Paul, unconverted people, Paul, need somebody to speak the truth to them, to help them spiritually, to open their eyes, he says, to turn them from darkness to light. See, the Bible teaches that those who aren't yet in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, that because of that spiritual condition, they're living in spiritual darkness inwardly. And sin's effect upon their life has caused them to be blinded. They're living in the dark on the inside. And they can't see clearly spiritual things. Second Corinthians chapter 4 even tells us that the God of this age, that is Satan, it says, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So those who don't believe because they choose not to believe... They give the devil power and enablement to keep them blinded spiritually. In their choice to not believe, they choose to let the devil continue to keep them blinded to spiritual truth. That's why sometimes you share the gospel with people and you're thinking, man, that was the clearest presentation of the gospel I have ever given. And, and they're going to beg me to get saved. And you say, so what do you think? Forgiveness of sins, free opportunity to go to heaven. God will give you peace. He'll change your life. Now, nah, no, I'll just... I don't believe that. And you're, what are you, blind? Yeah. That's why we got to pray as well. People are blind. And he says, Paul, you need to speak the truth to open people's eyes, to turn them, he says. That is, turn means repent, that they would turn from darkness and living in darkness to the light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me won't walk in darkness but have the light of life. And he says they also need to be turned away from the power of Satan to God, notice as well, people need to be liberated from their spiritual enslavement to be set free from the power of Satan controlling their lives. Now, again, we may not like to think of it, but it is biblically true. The Bible teaches because of our sinfulness that when we sin, we become enslaved to sin. And that if we are not under the power of God's rulership, then we as a person are still under the power of Satan spiritually. That's just what the Bible teaches. It's true. There are only two kingdoms. If you are not submitted to Jesus Christ, the king, and under the power of God, Ephesians 2 says those who are living in disobedience 
are under the power of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's working in those who are living disobedient to God. And they are under the power of Satan. Jesus says, if the son makes you free, then you'll be free indeed. See, that's what needs to happen. People need to be set free from being under the power of Satan by the power of God so that they can then receive, he says, verse 18, the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance, Jesus says, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus identifies what people need to receive. Forgiveness of sins. We're all sinful and we need to be pardoned and cleansed of our sin. Our sin separates us from God relationally as people and it can separate us from God eternally. And we need to be pardoned and cleansed of our sins. And only Jesus who died for our sins can be the one to forgive our sins. A church, a pastor, a priest can't forgive sins. You can't receive forgiveness of sins from anything or anyone other than Jesus because he who died for your sins and rose again. But notice it has to be received. You have to come to Jesus and say, I, I want to receive your forgiveness of my sins. You have to receive it from Jesus. And you also, in doing such, he says, receive, Jesus said, an inheritance. That speaks of our eternal inheritance. Again, an inheritance is something you freely receive as a gift. You don't work for it. You receive an inheritance from family. It's a freely received. We receive an inheritance of heaven. Because when you receive forgiveness of sins by receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, you also receive the gift of eternal life to be the one who inherits heaven after you die. And how do you do it? Well, Jesus couldn't make it more simple. He says you're set apart or sanctified for, for these things by faith in me. Believe, Jesus said. By faith in me, these things are freely available. As we place our trust in Jesus and what he has done for us, as we place our trust in Jesus for what he offers to us and what he can do for us, as we believe that by faith, we receive those things because then he does those things for us. He forgives our sins. He gives us the gift of eternal life. He gives us the power of his spirit dwelling within us to live for him as our Lord. How wonderful the life-changing power Jesus can bring when we believe him for what he can do for us. And that's how it works. We say, Lord, I believe what you're offering. I need to receive that. I believe it. And when you believe it from him, then you receive it from him because then his power brings that change.